You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Simon Carswell in Washington on Donald Trump's determination to get started immediately, though his style and approach are clearly not going to change. And in Istanbul, Stephen Starr on the successful attempts by President Erdogan to get parliamentary backing for the presidential system and powers that he has wanted for so long. And Clifford Coonan in Beijing reports on one of the world's and China's largest employers, Foxconn, producer of the world's iPhones and iPads. It employs 1.2 million in China alone. To Donald Trump's delight, it this week hinted it may invest in creating up to 50,000 jobs in the US. There was much hope all around the world that Donald Trump's inaugural would see some kind of indication that he intended to govern in a different way. No such luck. On Friday, there was no mending offences, no hands outstretched to the majority who voted against him, no change of language or of targets. The one target he omitted during the speech, however, was his pet hate, the mainstream media. On day two, he put that right with a blistering attack on the press. Among the most dishonest people on earth, he said, for downplaying the size of his inaugural crowd. Some cars, well, his press secretary, Sean Spicer, has invented a new concept, alternative facts, according to Kellyanne Conway. Selling the Trump version of reality seems to be the strategy. Yeah, it's um, you could say it's a new word in the Trumpian lexicon, I guess. It's their way of uh, saying they don't like the media's facts, so here's some of their own. And uh, so alternative facts, is, as Kellyanne described it when she was interviewed uh, on a Sunday talk show, and it's really kind of feeding into really where they were in the campaign. They painted the media as the dishonest media and all of their supporters. Um, they loved the anti-establishment nature of their campaign and bashing the media, the mainstream media, as it's called here, um, fit that agenda, it fit that narrative. Um, and it worked for Trump in the campaign. So obviously he's gonna, he feels it's going to work for him in the presidency. But it's it raises kind of very concerning issues that if they're going to react in this way, uh, if they get angry about the size of crowds at the inauguration, how are they going to react when there's more serious issues? You know, how would they react uh, to reports that they don't like about Trump's meeting with first meeting with Putin, for example, or if there's a big political loss in Capitol Hill? So it raises all sorts of issues around how um, Trump, the Trump administration, is going to deal with the media. And it didn't start uh, very well throughout the transition period as well when they indicated or they floated the idea of moving the White House press corps out of the White House. So it really shows that they intend to continue <clears throat> um, as they campaign. They, tend to con- in, they intend to continue as they did before in the campaign in the presidential, in the White House. And, of course, it's not going to help the new press secretary in his relationship with, with journalists which has to be based on some degree of, of trust. Absolutely. It all comes down to his credibility. There was some a comment made on, on social media over the weekend that each uh, White House press, press secretary only gets one lie in their, in their administration. And the fact that he chose to lie over the size of the inauguration crowd, which was clearly inaccurate, um, the pictures told the entire story. If you look at the photograph of uh, Barack Obama's first inauguration in 2009, the crowd was huge and you could see it pretty much filled up the mall all the way up to the Washington Monument. Trump, even though he said that there were no official figures or no one had figures, he said he ex- estimated that it was a million, a million and a half. And then Spicer even contradicted his, his own boss. He said in the press conference a little bit later on on Saturday 
uh, he provided figures that totaled 720,000. So they can't even get their own figures right, but they're happy to bash the media for just presenting two pictures, which clearly show um, a much smaller crowd at Trump's inauguration. One lie in, in a political, in a, in a term, seems to be a very high standard to meet. But anyway, it, it's, it's, uh, it, Spicer has had his one lie. He's now announced that he's not going to, after all, release his tax returns. How can people monitor his ethical conflicts uh, if they can't even see what his tax returns are? Well, that's a good question, and it's a very difficult one um, to monitor his conflicts of interest if he's not going to release his tax returns. They've even pivoted on that, though. Kellyanne Conway came out yesterday and said, you know, the American public don't care about that as an issue. They voted for him, um, and it's not a big deal for them. Um, now, she did, uh, she did say afterwards that he would release his tax returns, as he had said during the campaign, once his audit is complete. So... Um, we're not quite sure which fact they're going to go with um, in the long term. Uh, and we'll wait and see when this audit, when it is finished, um, whether they will release his tax returns. But it does raise major issues when trying to assess the conflicts of interest that he has. If we don't exactly know all his dealings that he has, all the business arrangements that he has, and the fact as well that he isn't uh, divesting himself of those business interests. They're going into a trust, but the trust is going to be managed by his two sons and a business associate. So he's not ring-fenced his business um, away from himself. So, uh, And he also has said that, he had said previously there would be no new deals by his business uh, during the lifetime of his presidency, but he backtracked on that and said there'd be no foreign deals, but uh, there would be domestic deals which would be vet vetted by a new ethics officer that they yet to appoint. So it's going to be very difficult to manage his conflict of interest, particularly when he's not disclosing what his full business interests are. He's launched himself into work anyway from, as I say, day two. Uh, and the latest thing is that he's ordered his defence chiefs to prepare a plan to crush ISIS. Now, during the campaign, were we not told that he had a secret camp, camp plan to defeat ISIS? We were told that. He said he had a plan, but he didn't want to tell us what it was because it would give away the plan to ISIS. So um, maybe that wasn't true either. Uh, and that this is he's coming up with a new plan. In fact, that the one he had in his head is not working out. But he has been very, very aggressive and very busy uh, in his first days in his administration, really uh, ticking off his checklist of big policy announcements. For example... Um, just announced a short time ago that he's intent on scrapping the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that's the trade deal with the uh, countries around the Pacific uh, Ocean. He's indicated and expecting some, some announcement today on that, that he's going to uh, have NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, renegotiated. And he said that he had spoken already to um, the Canadian Prime Minister and the Mexican President with a view to starting talks on that. And I think we'll see meetings on that front in the coming weeks. Uh, but there have been some kind of domestic steps as well, which will really uh, make his voters very happy. Uh, he said he's um, he's announced plans to reduce the burden of Obamacare. That's President Obama's health care law, which brings has given insurance to about 20 million Americans um, who hadn't previously not been insured. So these are the first steps towards his repeal of that. And it's a major signature achievement for President Obama during his presidency. It does seem he, as if that's a bit of a sleight of hand. The, his his first executive order was this repeal of of Obamacare, but it, it if you look at it in detail, it does look as if he's telling uh, states that they can uh, do as much as they uh, as the law permits them to do to undermine Obamacare, which doesn't seem to be actually undoing anything. Well, no, and they, they haven't undone it yet, but it's, it signals his intention that they intend to. The difficulty for the Republicans is that they don't have a replacement plan or they certainly don't have agreement amongst themselves on what the replacement plan should be. And they're also very fearful of 
a political backlash from people if they lose their insurance. Remember the backlash that there came from a lot of Republican voters when President Obama said that they would be able to keep their existing doctor under Obamacare, but that didn't happen. So I think Republicans are a little apprehensive as the fury that might come from voters if they were to lose insurance. So they're going to go slow on that. That whole idea of being able to repeal and replace simultaneously, I think, is not going to happen. They're, they're far from consensus and actually coming up with something that can replace Obamacare. So they're going to go a bit more slowly than Trump would like, or certainly as Trump had promised during the campaign. And he has also spoken to to uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, in the wake of an Israeli announcement that it was going to approve more than 500 uh, more illegal settlements. We don't even know if that issue came up, though. We don't, and uh, we're expecting something to be said this week from the White House about that. David Friedman, uh, Trump's uh, pick for ambassador to Israel, has made it clear that they want to make a big announcement that they intend to move uh, the embassy, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which would be a huge political um, move uh, to, to announce. So uh, I think that if that happens this week, that could be uh, certainly could be Donald Trump's first foreign policy issue, potentially crisis that arises <clears throat> if they go ahead and announce those plans. But a little bit circumspect at the moment as to whether that's going to happen or not. And he's he's not doing terribly well in terms of getting his cabinet uh, nominations accepted by Congress, largely because of uh, attempts by Congress to vet uh, any ethical conflicts that might arise uh, with, with them. Only two so far, uh, this being Monday, uh, formally approved, we might get another two by tomorrow. But that's well behind the seven that uh, Obama had at this stage. Yeah, it is. And there's some tricky ones as well, like Betsy DeVos, um, who's a billionaire, and he wants to put her in as education secretary. She really struggled during her confirmation hearing. She just didn't understand the basics of some of the, the issues in the education debate. For example, the, the debate around proficiency, which is meeting benchmarks versus growth, which is progress. And she really showed that she didn't have a clue what she was talking about there. Um, and also, I think that kind of confirmed a lot of Democratic suspicions that she's really only been picked as education secretary because she's a big donor and um, that she's given a lot of money to the Republican Party. Um, some of his picks are very odd, of course. I mean, tr picking Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, to be the energy secretary. This is a man who uh, said he wanted to abolish the department when he ran for the presidency in, in, in 2012. He does seem to uh, turn on abolishing the energy department. Yeah, I mean... He came out straight away and said at his confirmation hearing and said that he's seen what the department does and now he, he, he's changed his view. He says it's a very valuable department and he wants to, he thinks it should remain because obviously he wants to be the secretary of it. Um, but some of the other, some of the other candidates, uh, some of the other nominees have come under a lot of intense questioning. Um, the, uh, Marco Rubio, the Florida senator, came out in support of Rex Tillerson. This is the head of ExxonMobil, who... Um, uh, Trump wants to put in as Secretary of State. So that really removes a big roadblock there, particularly after two other Republican senators, Lindsey Graham and John McCain, said that they weren't uh, going to object to Rex Tillerson. Rubio's concern was that Tillerson was unwilling to criticize Russia over what it was doing in Syria and the, and the bombardment in Aleppo. And he was also... Um, Rubio was concerned that Tillerson was not being critical of Saudi Arabia and China and some of their human rights abuses. So the fact that Rubio now has come round shows that Rubio is not willing to pick a fight on this particular issue. Uh, he got a lot of respect, I think, from from the anti-Trumpers um, around D.C. that he had stood up uh, to Rex Tillerson during the confirmation hearing. But that's a big win for Trump. Uh, and that looks like it's going to go straight to a Senate vote. And given that the Republicans have 52 seats in the Senate, it's more than likely going to get passed. Thank you very much, Simon.
Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, elected to the job in 2014 after 10 years as Prime Minister, has long wanted to amend Turkey's constitution to allow the ceremonial president become what he sees as a real president. In practice, everyone knows who pulls the strings at the moment, Erdogan. But he was determined to give himself legal authority and over the weekend his MPs obliged. With the support of far-right nationalists, they agreed to constitutional changes that will now go to referendum, and among other things, abolished his old job of Prime Minister. Stephen Steyer, reforms are very sweeping. And what is his rationale? This has been something that's been on the, the books for quite a long time. And I mean, Erdogan has, has worked in, in stages. This has been a project of his for a number of years, uh, ever since he took over the presidency in the first place back in 2014. And even before that, you, you, you could argue. Uh, until since then and until now, there's been a, a case of a, a duality of issues because the prime minister in Turkey uh, essentially controls government by order of the constitution and the president's role is largely ceremonial. He wants to eliminate that, as, as, as you mentioned, and uh, take complete control of all political affairs. Um, if and when uh, this constitution is adopted, he will be able to control budgets and appoint judges. He have a say in cabinet appointments. And I guess crucially for the, the, the Turkish people who support him, he will take back leadership of the AK party, which has been in power uh, since 2002. Uh, currently, presidents can't uh, be involved uh, in, in the actual day-to-day running of the country. Of course, in reality, it's been Erdogan and, and nobody else uh, who, who uh, calls the shots uh, in Turkish politics. The appointment of judges is particularly striking as a right. There's been a lot of... Uh conflict between uh, Erdogan and the judiciary. This this will alarm a lot of people. Yeah, that's right. And it's again, stretches back to uh, about three years ago, uh, December 2013. Uh, a number of uh, uh, people with close ties to Erdogan, including some of his family members, um, were sought in relation to a gra- and graft, the charges of graft. Um, Erdogan portrayed the, 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 that crackdown, attempted crackdown at least, as an attempt by uh, supporters of the Gulen movement, the Hizmet movement, uh, led by, allegedly by uh, Fatullah Gulen, who was based in uh, Pennsylvania since, 2000 and, since 1999 even. Um, and so since then, he has, uh, as you say, uh, dwelled on the issue of the, the judiciary and particularly the police as well. So what you've had over the last couple of years or since that time has been a, an almost clean sweep of judicial independence. And uh, the in recent years, even last year, I believe, uh, most of the, the actual power, so to speak, was taken out of the hands of the, of the judiciary and given to the Minister for the Interior. Now, I guess what this new changes will, will mean is that everything will be solidified and above board uh, in terms of the constitution that uh, this is this will all be uh, allowed legal and uh, and uh, free and easy i guess for Erdogan going forward at least 
Yes, many of the powers that he 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 will get were already granted post the July attempted coup in in terms of emergency powers. That's right. I mean, and you know, it, what we've so many things have been happening politically and in terms of the security issues over the last couple of months in Turkey that some of these other things have been kind of put aside or at least happened. Uh, made major major headlines and currently under the constitution the uh, state of emergency can only be uh, re- which is three months uh, each term can only be renewed once up to a period of a maximum period of six months uh, that's happened twice so we're entering uh, a nine-month period uh, soon uh, which is what happened after the the attempted coup uh, last last july of course the broader picture and what affects uh, a lot of people is uh, certainly in Istanbul over the last couple of months is the uh, general security issue. We've had a number of uh, terrorist bombings in various parts of the city. We had a manhunt here that was ended just last week for the uh, individual uh, allegedly responsible for killing 39 people at a, a nightclub on, on, on New Year's Eve. And so the, the nuts and bolts of, of what Erdogan is doing and how he is going about uh, regaining political uh, c- control of the, of the country has uh, almost, in a sense, been cast to one to one side in in, regard, in relation to the uh, the broader security uh, concerns here. And of course, uh, getting this legislation through was no uh, was no mean feat. Uh, it it required getting support from the far right nationalists, but it also saw extraordinary scenes in Parliament. Yeah, scenes that have been coming uh, more, more and more common over the last couple of months. Uh, you know, uh, when there was a, a debate, at least over. Um, whether or not Turkey could form, uh, the AKP could form a, a government following the loss of its majority, its parliamentary majority uh, two years ago, uh, the far-right party, the MHP, as you mentioned, wouldn't agree with the AK party uh, to go into government with them. Uh, things have changed since that. Uh, now the MHP is backing uh, this uh, constitutional change. And of course, as you mentioned again, uh, it was beaten in large part because of the MHP's contribution that it got past the, the, the recent uh, parliamentary motion. Now, broader picture, why has the MHP decided to back uh, Erdogan this time around? Well, in large part, it's because the MHP uh, really is, has, uh, vehemently opposes any rights for Kurds in Turkey. Uh, and in that time period, the AKP, the, the Turkish government, has cracked down on a, a host of uh, Turkish, uh, uh, Kurdish political leaders and Kurdish separatist groups, uh, whether they are, are related or not, is, is, is a, a different story. Uh, there's currently 11 members of parliaments with the, of the uh, Kurdish-aligned HDP party who are imprisoned on a whole host of of, uh, of charges. Recently, the co- co-chair of the uh, HDP, Sadin Demirtas, was acquitted of one uh, charges against him, but he still faces 102 charges. Uh, so what happens to him, whether or not he would stay in prison uh, or uh, over the next coming uh, number of years, no one knows. But the, uh, the currently prosecutors are demanding up to 140 years for Demirtas. So it seems at least that the opposition to um, to Erdogan from the Kurdish side of, of the situation uh, has been thwarted. Um, and the likelihood is, of course, that the, the, the nationalists will join the, the the cabinet, but uh, there were there was a punch up uh, or two in in the parliament, and and apparently one um, MP actually lost her artificial arm in the course of it. 
Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, and we see these pictures uh, that are broadcast around the world. It gives a very, uh, very bad image, of course, of Turkish politics, but it also gives a sense of the fractious nature of, what's, hap- of what's happening. You know, it's been for, for many years, at least until the AK party's dominance of, of uh, politics in Turkey, that the secularist H- uh, CHP party was the, 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 the party founded by uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of the, of the modern Turkish state, that was really the strongest party uh, in in Turkey. Now they've been completely sidelined over the last couple of years, uh, in particular uh, since Erdogan has tried to, uh, with increasing kind of fervor, to, to take control of, of of Turkish of Turkish politics. Uh, once upon a time, they were an important kind of block within Turkish uh, parliamentary politics that would that had at least always kept a hold of. Uh, so-called Islamist uh, trends in, in, in Turkish politics. Uh, but of course, in a sense, some people would, would say that you know, the cat is out of the bag, that Erdogan has lit a fire under many of the conservative Turkish people, uh, of uh, particularly of uh, Central Anatolia, people who are by nature quite religious and quite conservative. And uh, now they, they see someone who speaks their, their language and uh, who, who, who they see represented him uh, on a political level. And Erdogan is talking about going further. He's hinted that he he will support moves to restore the death penalty, which, apart from anything else, will probably uh, put a final nail in the coffin of of Turkish aspiration to join the EU. But do you think that's going to happen? I think it's very likely. I think he hasn't decided yet. I think uh, I think he's playing a game with with Europe right now, and uh, I think he's letting Europe sit on the fact that last year there was a huge fall in the number of illegal. Uh, of, of refugees entering Europe and asylum seekers entering Europe from Turkey uh, because of what Turkey uh, did exactly 12 months ago. They, they required uh, Syrians to have visas before they could enter Turkey. Uh, so he knows that Turkey, that uh, the various political leaders in Europe uh, need him to do what he has been doing over the last few years in order to keep, I guess, nationalist sentiments to, to one side in, 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 in Europe. So he, he figures, he knows that he is a number of... Uh, uh, a number of uh, fingers in, in various pies, uh, be it with uh, his Turkey's membership of NATO or the fact that he's able to switch on or switch off the flow of refugees into Europe. And so, you know, if, if, if Europe decides that they will, that they may end uh, the talks on Turkey's potential uh, accession to the EU, you know, there's various things, he's got various uh, levers of which he can, he can, uh, he can move around uh, to, to maybe force uh, EU leaders to change their minds. It's what we call Trump cards now. And and certainly he, he, he has uh, quite a few of them. I presume that he will uh, win any referendum on these constitutional changes. Yeah, he needs a simple majority of 51%. It's, it's quite likely, I think, um, there's been kind of a larger uh, sway of, Tur- of the Turkish population behind him than maybe any time over the last number of years couple of years ago, at least, there was quite a lot of opposition, in, particularly after the anti-government uh, protests centred on Gezi Park in, in, in Istanbul. Now, uh, you know, he has uh, restarted this war against Kurdish separatists, which is a very, very popular war amongst uh, particularly uh, a lot of people who would have been involved in the anti-government protests, a lot of secularists, a lot of the urban elite. Uh, don't like the idea of of, of uh, better rights uh, for Kurds. So a lot of those people, they may not necessarily vote for the constitution change, but they would not do anything to to, to oppose that, or at least not uh, actively oppose it. I suppose in terms of of, of, of further demonstrations. 
Um, he has, you know, a lot of things have aligned in his, his favor right now, both internally and internationally. So, and the fact that he needs a simple majority as well points to, I think, to, to you know, a likely win in, in uh, the upcoming uh, referendum, which, uh, which is expected to be held before the end of April. Thank you very much, Stephen. And now to China. Donald Trump has been claiming some success already, although it has to be said somewhat fraudulently, in persuading US companies not to delocalize from the US. But his team will have taken some delight in the timely leaked announcement in recent days that Taiwan's 46 billion group Foxcom, one of the biggest employers in China, where it has 1.2 million workers, is discussing a 7 billion investment in the US. It could produce some 50,000 jobs, according to founder Terry Gu. Clifford Kuhnman, tell me about Foxconn's operations in China. It's the world's largest contract electronics maker. They produce iPads and iPhones for Apple. That's right. Uh, it's it's a massive company. They're, the biggest plant they have in China is in, in Shenzhen. Uh, it's got tens of thousands of employees there. They also have, uh, I, I visited it once, they have the canteen where they slaughter 7,000 pigs a week. It's a massive place. So... Um, they're, they also build iPhones in Zhengzhou, which is a new plant, a relatively new plant. Um, it's hugely important to the Chinese economy and hugely important, particularly in the south of China. So um, when this sort of announcement comes from the US, as you can imagine, it sets alarm bells ringing around here. Yeah, it's a very much a labor intensive uh, company, but it, it, it's sort of at the cutting edge of technology. And I'll come back to that. But it's had labor troubles and, and mm-hmm. there's, there's been stories about suicides from from overwork. That's right. It was uh, a few years ago, they, they had to install all these fences around the roof of the building to stop people jumping. Some of that was down to working conditions. A lot of it was just down to basically with property prices in China being so expensive, uh, people were having to work as many hours as they could to, to work up enough money to buy to buy property so they could get married. It was a really... Uh, it was a very much a social problem of, of a changing China. Um, and it's the kind of work that uh, is done in China because no one else in the world wanted to do it. And uh, this is very important, I think, when, you co- when it comes to consider the idea of whether uh, your, US, uh, your average U.S. industrial worker is prepared to work the same hours and the same conditions as, as a Chinese worker. Soul-destroying, repetitive work. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, these people, they're penalized, they sit down, they have to stand there, and um, everyone signs up for it. It's voluntary, you know, and, and people move around a lot in, in these factories in southern China. But, but ultimately, it's the kind of work that the West has evolved from uh, in industrial terms, really. Um, they, they outsource this work to, to China and to other parts of Asia because they don't want to do it themselves. No one in the Midwest... Uh, is prepared to work uh, 60, 70 hour weeks uh, for very small wage, for very small hourly wages, and and much lower overtime than they would be used to in, in other sectors uh, to for the for the same wages. They would they would just wouldn't do it. Now the the talk about a, a U.S. plant is not it's not a commitment. Um, it it would be to produce screens for their subsidiary in in America, Sharp, which has not been doing terribly well. But it is still quite likely. It might take some time, though. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also rumours that Apple may actually develop a television and build it in the US to for and have Foxconn build it in the US in order to kind of balance uh, the various demands that Mr. Trump is making. But um, it's it, it could take some time. Uh, Terry Go has 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 basically um, he's 
sounds like not so much he's reconsidering, but he's kind of moderated his initial comments saying this is a wish and not a, an actual uh, plan at the moment. Uh, for him, politically, it's quite difficult, too, because uh, in Taiwan, uh, obviously, Taiwan is very pleased with, with Trump because of the way he, he accepted their president Tsai Ing-wen's phone call. Uh, congratulating him on his on his election win, and they're very keen to have closeness there. But the fact is that Go, Terry Go needs China for his business to really thrive. And if China uh, is at odds with uh, Donald Trump over this, he will probably have to choose China in the end. So it's a very delicate balancing act for 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 Terry Go. There's also an interesting irony in this story. Much of the job carnage which Trump talked about in his inaugural. Uh, speech is linked not so much to jobs being exported, but to automation and robots replacing workers. And Foxcom is actually at the forefront of precisely that process. It, it boasted, for example, that it automated away 60,000 jobs at one of its Chinese factories. That's right. They uh, they, they set a target of 30% automation by 2020 at its Chinese factories. Uh, he's He's moved a lot of his uh, plants from southern China to central China because labor costs are so expensive. Um, his move has been is always to do things at the, at the absolute cheapest level that can be possibly done, um, which isn't the U.S. As we all know, um, you know the the promises look great on paper, but um, the idea of calling for industrial jobs in the U.S. heartland at this stage is a bit like calling for agricultural jobs. You know these are. The, the ship has sailed, you know, and, and, and you really see that when you look at Foxconn, where he's just introduced robot arms um, to do all kinds of different uh, uh, um, conveyor belt work that, that would normally have been done by humans. I saw this, uh, this at an Irish company once in southern China as well, where they were very used to very cheap labor. And then quickly they introduced robots because as soon as labor costs start rising, it doesn't become workable to do it in China. So how... Um, how Trump thinks that this is going to work in the US, that people, that Foxconn, a, a huge company like Foxconn is going to prepare to maybe have a lost leader in, in the US or something because of, uh, because of political demands. It's, it's hard to imagine. Thank you very much, Clifford. Thanks to Simon Carswell, Stephen Starr and Clifford Coonan, to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.